we gather this morning to praise Him, His Word instructs us, invites us, encourages us to do just that. And so let me invite you to open up God's Word with me this morning to the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus. And today we return to uh, this book, we return to this journey, we return to this uh, story, and, uh, and let me invite you to hear a message from Exodus chapter 9 today uh, on heaven and hail. Uh, now that's not a misspelling, uh, nor is it a... Uh, prolonged, at least not an intentional prolonged Alabama draw, uh, heaven and hail. Uh, but I'm talking about the plagues that God brought upon the land of Egypt when Pharaoh wouldn't let the enslaved Israelites depart the land and, and worship him. You see, as promised, uh, God will deliver them. God is a, a faithful God. He is always faithful to his word. He had made a covenant, a promise. Uh, entered into a relationship with, with Abraham as a uh, man of faith and called Abraham to trust him and to go where he led him and told Abraham that he would make his offspring numerous, as numerous as the stars in the heaven, and that through them all nations of the earth would be blessed. And God is going to be found faithful to this covenant. Nothing or no one will stand in his way. And in the process, God is teaching his people to trust him, and he is exercising judgment upon Egypt and her gods. And so we're in the plagues. And you no doubt have heard of the plagues. Perhaps you've studied the plagues. Maybe you've heard them taught a number of times or read about them. And last week we looked at the first uh, three of the plagues. We looked at uh, water to blood. Uh, and we looked at uh, the frogs hopping across the land and uh, the gnats swarming the land of Egypt. And today we are going to cover quite a bit of ground. Uh, we, we could spend many weeks talking about the plagues, but we're going to uh, give sort of an overview of the rest of them. And in the process, I want to hone in on one particular plague, and that's the plague of hail uh, recorded in chapter 9 of Exodus, beginning in verse 13. And so all that to say, I want to I draw some truths from God's word that I think we learned from uh, the, the plague accounts, uh, tr- truths that could be discerned from any one of these uh, plague encounters, but certainly uh, through uh, the, the the reading of the entire series, and then also uh, certainly in the context of God's greater word, instructions for us, uh, truth for us that ought to be applied to our lives as people of faith today. And so with all of that being said, uh, let's hear from the word of the Lord. Um, and let me encourage you to find your place in Exodus 9. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures, you can find one in the pew rack around you and find this text on page 51. But as you find your place there, let me invite you to join me standing, uh, whether in body or in spirit, for the reading of God's holy word. Uh, one plague, but a fairly lengthy passage of scripture today. Let's hear from the Lord. Then the Lord said to Moses, get up early in the morning, confront Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says, let my people go so that they may worship me. For this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people so you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. You still set yourself against my people and will not let them go. Therefore, at this time tomorrow, I will send the worst hailstorm that has ever fallen on Egypt from the day it was founded till now. Give an order now to bring your livestock and everything you have in the field to a place of shelter because the hail will fall on every person and animal that has not 
been brought in and is still out in the field, and they will die. Those officials of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord hurried to bring their slaves and their livestock inside, but those who ignored the word of the Lord left their slaves and livestock in the field. Verse 22. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward the sky so that hail will fall all over Egypt on people and animals and on everything growing in the fields of Egypt. When Moses stretched out his staff toward the sky, the Lord sent thunder and hail and lightning flashed down to the ground. So the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. Hail fell and lightning flashed back and forth. It was the worst storm in all the land of Egypt since it had become a nation. Throughout Egypt, hail struck everything in the fields, both people and animals. It beat down everything growing in the fields and stripped every tree. The only place it did not hail was the land of Goshen, where the Israelites were. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron. This time I have sinned, he said to them. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Pray to the Lord, for we have had enough thunder and hail. I will let you go. You don't have to stay any longer. Moses replied, When I have gone out of the city, I will spread out my hands in prayer to the Lord. The thunder will stop, and there will be no more hail, so you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But I know that you and your officials still do not fear the Lord God. Verse 31, the flax and barley were destroyed since the barley had headed and the flax was in bloom. The wheat and spelt, however, were not destroyed because they ripened later. Then Moses left Pharaoh and went out of the city. He spread out his hands toward the Lord. The thunder and hail stopped and the rain no longer poured down on the land. When Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and thunder had stopped, he sinned again. He and his officials hardened their hearts. So Pharaoh's heart was hard and he would not let the Israelites go. Just as the Lord had said through Moses. Would you bow with me? Father, now we ask you to instruct us according to your word. Lord, this is your word. Guide us in it that we might rightly understand it and apply its truths to our lives today as your people. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, let me encourage you. If you've got a Bible open to keep it open. We're going to be in this text, but be directing our attention to a few surrounding passages or surrounding verses in the surrounding passages of the other plagues. But one truth that I've been aiming to drive home over the last few weeks, because I think Exodus uh, is speaking this to us, and that is this, it's that God displays his might so all may know him. God is a God who displays his might, his greatness, his power, his magnificence. He, He displays his might so all may know him. Uh, one of the most common messages of the Bible is that God is all-powerful. Uh, he's omnipotent. And, and His power is described in a number of different ways over uh, many different things. For example, the Word of the Lord is powerful. Uh, the, the Lord has power over Satan and His armies, over the angels and over every false god. The Lord has power over all creation. Uh, the Lord has power over history. And over every kingdom, the Lord has power over all life. You see, God is mighty. He's majestic. He's magnificent. He's he's matchless. And his might is evident through what he has made through his creation. Paul the Apostle uh, reminds us of this truth, teaches us this truth. In Romans chapter 1, verse 20, he says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities... His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. 
So Paul is saying that some of who God is can be known, can be discerned simply by observing God's creation. The beauty and the complexity and the design of the universe is sufficient for humans to conclude that there's a good God and we are responsible to him. We are accountable to him. Paul continues in those opening chapters of Romans and drives home the point that uh, we have all rejected him. We're without excuse for our sin. We can look around and see that there's a God and that he's good and that we are accountable to him, that we are not him. We owe our existence to him. And yet even so, we continue to reject him. We continue to sin. In other words, we have enough knowledge through creation to condemn us for rejecting him, for not seeking him. Romans chapter 3, verse 1. And Bible teachers often call this type of revelation uh, general revelation. What can be learned about God uh, through, through nature. Enough to leave no excuse for our sin, but not enough to save us from our sins. For that, we need God to speak to us clearly, specifically. For that, we need special revelation. That is, for God to reveal himself to us through his word. And that's what he's doing here in Exodus to Pharaoh. Moses, verse 13, get up early in the morning, confront Pharaoh, and say to him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says. Let my people go so they may worship me. Or, Moses, speak to Pharaoh on my behalf. Tell him this. So again and again in this story, through Moses, God warns Pharaoh and tells him to prepare. Once again, God's mercy is mingled with his judgment. God displays his might so all may know him, including Pharaoh and his officials. And when they don't heed the warning, God puts his power on display. He exercises judgment, works miracles so that unbelievers may see his hand and come to know him. In the opening chapter of his classic book, The Knowledge of the Holy, A.W. Tozer writes this. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What a statement. If that is true, and I believe that it is, then there is nothing more fundamental and necessary, church, than for you to know God. To know Him experientially, that is to be in relationship with Him, but also uh, to know Him intellectually, that is to know who He is. And the ten plagues, strange as they may seem, help us know who He is. For in, in them, God declares His sovereignty over every false God. God declares His sovereignty over every false God. By working wonders upon the land of Pharaoh, the Lord God reveals His supremacy over all the false gods of Egypt. We alluded to this last week, that there were uh, some 80 or so deities that were worshipped in ancient Egypt, including uh, gods associated with the Nile River, Plague One, and gods associated with those hopping amphibians that we call frogs, Plague Two. But in addition to those, God now declares through the remaining plagues that he rules over all the livestock of the land, plague number five, including the many gods that were depicted in Egypt as livestock. God rules over the atmosphere and the sky, plague number seven, the plague of hail. The gods of the field, plague number eight, the plague of locusts, and perhaps most notable, Amon Re, or the sun god, sometimes called Re, sometimes called Ra. Representing the sun. 
You see, ancient Egyptians worshipped the sun, believed to be incarnated as uh, Ray. This is the image in our series graphic, the bulletin graphic. The image of a man with a, a hawk or some bird, of, of, uh, a predatory bird on his, on his head, often depicted this way, other times depicted as a sphinx in ancient Egypt, of whom Pharaoh was believed to be the sun, S-O-N. No doubt, there's no question that the plague of darkness, plague number nine, is most certainly a statement about God's sovereignty over this God, the biggest of all Egypt's gods, the sun god. And you see, when the Lord confronts Pharaoh, not even the revered and life-giving sun god could help them. The author of Numbers would later recount the Lord's delivering his people, the Lord delivering the Israelites from the hand of slavery in Egypt and say that in the process, as the Hebrews left the land of the pyramids, the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn, Numbers 33, verse 4, whom the Lord had struck down among them, for the Lord had brought judgment on their gods. And in just a short while, in Exodus chapter 18, Moses would uh, encounter his father-in-law Jethro, and he would begin to tell Jethro about all that the Lord had done in Egypt and how he had uh, shown his, his power, his worked miracles, and delivered his people. And Jethro responds, he says, Now I know that the Lord is greater than all other gods, for he did this to those who had treated Israel arrogantly. See, through the plagues, God declares his sovereignty over every false God. And God shows his power over all people and practices. God shows his power over all people and practices. We see this, I think, throughout the whole plague experience. But perhaps especially in plague number six, the plague of boils. If we zoom in and read each of these accounts, Accounts of the plagues, we would see a pattern developed. God calls Moses and Aaron to obey him, to go confront Pharaoh, and then to stretch out your hand, to say this, to do this. And in response, God would show his great power, his superior power. And then there would be an attempt by uh, the magicians and sorcerers of of Egypt to, to imitate those signs, counterfeit signs. And sometimes those were successful, other times they weren't. And then Pharaoh would harden his heart in in unbelief. Well, here in the plague of boils in Exodus chapter 9, the plague affected the magicians personally. The very people, the very ones that Pharaoh is counting on to rival Moses with their own signs and wonders are suddenly overtaken by illness themselves. They cannot repeat the sign. They cannot remove the plague. They cannot resist its grip upon them. Exodus chapter 9 verse 11. The magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils that were on them and on all the Egyptians. You see, the clear picture that develops here is that the magicians of Pharaoh are no match for Moses and his God. And up until now in this, in this series, in this encounter, in this journey, in this conversation, so to speak, Moses and Aaron need permission to stand before Pharaoh and his officials. And now all of a sudden the roles are reversed. Pharaoh's men cannot stand before Moses. And in light of this, surely the Egyptians and surely their leaders, surely their officials, surely these magicians began to look to their own gods in whom they trust for healing. And there were a number of gods in ancient Egypt associated with healing. But it's the Lord God Almighty. One we gather in the name of today, the one that we sing to today, the one that we celebrate today. It's this God and this 
This God alone who has absolute power over the physical health of his people. And today we certainly are grateful for modern medicine. But we're, we're people, I, th- I think. I mean, we, we perhaps you know people that don't really believe or don't utilize modern medicine, but that's not us. We're, we're not sort of uh, health and wealth prosperity uh, teachers here. We believe that medicine is a gift from God. How grateful we are to live in a place like Birmingham, Alabama, where there are good hospitals and medical practices and specialists that we have access to. We, we know that people come from all over regionally to this place for medical care. But as much as we appreciate medicine, medicine is not our God. Only God creates and only God sustains and only God himself rules over all life. I made mention this last week in the church newsletter of a conversation between uh, Paul after he's arrested before King Agrippa in Caesarea. Recorded in Acts chapter 26 where Paul is arrested for preaching and teaching the gospel and he's given a defense of what he's done and what he believes and he's sharing the gospel. He's talking about Jesus being raised from the dead and life in Christ and he says this. He says, why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? Why is this incredible? Of course, people don't normally rise from the dead. We know this. It is incredible. Unless it's done by God. Friend, do you have a view of God that not only allows but expects God to work wonders? To do healing and to intervene and yes, even to raise from the dead. Church, we're talking about God. The only God, the one and only set apart and above. The one who knows all things and who does mighty things. The miracle worker and the sovereign ruler. The caring father and the just judge. The one who displays his might so all may know him. Friend, do you know him? Do you know this one? The king, the author of life, redeemer of life. You see, one reason that you will want to know him is because he is a God who protects his people from his wrath. He's a God who protects his people from his wrath. And we see this again and again in the plague encounter. God is a God of wrath. God's wrath is real because he is just. God always does the right thing. To say that God is righteous is to say that he's always right. You and I don't always do the right thing. You could hang out with me for a little while and you'd probably figure out I don't always do the right thing. I could probably say the same thing about you. You could hang out with my kids. I could hang out with your kids and we'd probably realize real quick they don't always do the right thing. In fact, so very often we do the wrong thing. We, we fail to conform to the moral and ethical standards that are established by God himself. And this is called sin. We're all guilty of it. In the words of one author, the righteous nature of God demands punishment for sin so that the whole human race is under death penalty. If God should mark iniquities, no one could survive. Friend, God's judgments are always just. The execution of his judgments upon Egypt were just. The hail, H-A-I-L, falling from the sky was just. And the hail, H-E-L-L, of which Jesus spoke often is also just. God is just in his punishments. His judgment, though, is always mingled with mercy. And this is good news. Like the psalmist celebrates in Psalm 130, verse 4, singing, but with you, God, there is forgiveness. 
Yes, God, you are sovereign, you are just, you are holy, you are eternal and righteous and set apart, but you forgive. See, even though the horrific plagues upon Egypt brought great turmoil, even through these, God is showing mercy. He's warning Pharaoh himself, verse 15 of chapter 9, for by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people and wiped you off the earth, but I haven't done it, he says. I've been patient. I'm being merciful. I've raised you up for this very purpose that I might show you my power. In other words, so you might see my hand. So you may come to know me. And so that my name will be known throughout the earth. He shows his mercy. He warns Pharaoh and he spares his people. Again and again, God delineates in the plague episodes between those who trust him and those who reject him. Between those who are his and those who aren't. In fact, we see it right here with some of the Egyptians in verses 20 and 21. Those officials of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord hurried to bring their slaves and their livestock inside, and they were spared. Those who didn't, did not. But backing up even further, travel with me in a few pages of Scripture. Exodus chapter 8, verse 22. God says, On that day I will deal differently with the land of Goshen where my people live. This is the plague of flies. No swarms of flies will be there. Why? So that you will know that I, the Lord, am in this land. I will make a distinction between my people and your people. In chapter 9, verse 4. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and that of Egypt. So that no animal belonging to the Israelites will die. Chapter 9, verse 26. The only place it did not hail was the land of Goshen. Where the Israelites were. Chapter 10, verse 23 plague of darkness, no one could see anyone else or move about for three days. Yet all the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. Finally, chapter 11, verse 6, the plague of the firstborn. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt. Worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. Then you will know, he says, that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. You see, there's no doubt that the plagues in Egypt portray the judgment of God, but they don't only portray the judgment of God, they portray the salvation of God. God is a God who doesn't act casually or flippantly. God is a God who values life. He portrays judgment for those who fail to believe and salvation for all who will believe. And church, this is a consistent and traceable theme throughout God's word. Judgment for the unrighteous and forgiveness and salvation for the righteous. I don't want to make too little of this. Lest we think that God's character or his plans have changed. Or that Jesus somehow softens the harsh reality of God's wrath upon sinners. Don't forget where the scriptures end. The final book of The Bible, the book of Revelation, repeatedly depicts God's judgments upon the wicked. Revelation chapter 6, verses 15 and following, a picture of just that. God's judgment carried out on the wicked. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, all people, all wicked people, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of the wrath is come and who can withstand it? What a, what a 
troubling picture. God's judgment for human sin is real. If we believe the Bible, it is deserved and left to ourselves. We are condemned. But church, like the lowly Israelites in ancient Egypt, we have not been left to ourselves. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. That there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunge beneath that flood. Lose all their guilty stains. No longer guilty. Righteous Forgiven and restored. Who can withstand God's wrath? The question comes, the answer comes in the next chapter, Revelation chapter 7. It comes in a vision of a great multitude of worshipers in heaven surrounding the throne of God. And John says, he says, then one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they? Where did they come from? John said, sir, you know, I don't know, you tell me. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Church, you see, through the the blood of the Lamb, our sins are washed away. Through the blood of the Lamb, we are spared God's wrath. Our God is merciful. He does make a way for sinners to receive forgiveness and reconciliation with Him. Through repentance and faith, He invites us to receive the gift of a right relationship with Him. To be restored, to be made right, to be made new, to be forgiven, to be righteous in His eyes. Don't miss the Bible's plea for us to soften our hearts to the God who saves. Have you softened your heart? To the God who saves. Sinner, repent. And trust the Lord. This word calls us. This word tells us that we're all sinners. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But the same word invites all sinners to repent and trust in Him. And receive life and salvation. You see, again and again, Pharaoh appears on the verge of surrender. Our text for this morning, chapter 9, verse 27, he even acknowledges sin, suggesting that he is on the verge, perhaps, of bowing before the Lord, only to harden his heart again and reject, and reject the Lord. A warning to us, a warning to the world. Friends, our God is a God who graciously provides forgiveness. He wants all to know him, but you cannot know him if you do not turn from your wicked heart. And trust in Him. So sinner, repent and trust the Lord. Invite you to trust Him. Invite you to receive forgiveness and life and reconciliation through the blood of His Son. Well, the plagues upon Egypt are a call for sinners to repent. But they're also a call for the saved to celebrate. For those who know they are forgiven. For those who have been spared. For those who are right with the Lord because of what... The Lord has done for us a call for the saved to celebrate. The saved are those whose hope is in the God who who saves through Jesus. The saved are those who are protected from God's wrath. So saved ones celebrate His provision and tell a story. Celebrate the provision of God for you and for me. Celebrate His provision and tell His story. This is what the Lord instructs His people to do. Exodus chapter 10 Verse 1, then the Lord said to Moses, I have hardened Pharaoh's heart 
so that I may perform these signs of mine among them. Verse 2, that you may tell your children and grandchildren how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians and how I have performed my signs among them and that you may know that I am the Lord. I think in blind day, yes, that you may know me, God says, that you may know who I am, but also that you may know me personally. God says, I'm saving you so you may know me. He says, I'm saving you so you may tell the generations to come after you about me so that they too may also come to know me. This brings us to the final plague, plague that we'll we'll explore a bit more next week in the Passover, but the final plague is the most personal. In fact, throughout the plague encounters, they're gradually becoming more and more personal. This plague is the death of every firstborn son in the land. And perhaps you'll remember back to Exodus chapter 4, verse 22. God said that I claim Israel, I claim the Israelites as my firstborn son. This is a theme that we read throughout the Old Testament. Certainly a theme that has a correlation in the New Testament when God essentially says all believers are his son, like an adopted son, sons and daughters of the Most High God. He says God had claimed Israel as his firstborn son and he had promised that Pharaoh would repay with his own firstborn. Chapter 4, verse 23 And so he did. And in the process of this final plague, chapter 11, verse 3, the Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the Israelites, giving them gifts as they depart the land. Giving them gifts of silver and gold. What's going on here? You see, God is fighting the battle for his people. God is a God who fights battles for his people. God is fighting the battle for his people, a battle that he would continue to fight. And that our God would ultimately win in the most surprising of ways, the most subversive of ways. A battle that he would win against sin and Satan and ultimately death itself by giving up his own firstborn son. Colossians chapter 1 verse 15, Paul tells us who the son is. The son of God is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Same chapter, verse 19, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Friends, God displays his might so all may come to know him. And the ultimate display of God's might was through his coming in the flesh, the incarnation Living a sinless life, the perfect life, the life that we couldn't, and ultimately giving his life in our place as the perfect Lamb of God, the perfect sacrifice that takes away our sins and his triumphant resurrection from the dead. Friend, this was for you. This was for you. It's for you and for for me and for whosoever may come to know him here on earth and forevermore in heaven on high. For God so loved the world. You know the text. That he gave his one and only son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish. But have eternal life. And so friends in light of this gospel. In light of this good news. It is good news. In light of this good news. Informed by and foreshadowed in. And declared through the promise that was given long long ago to Abraham. And through the deliverance brought to bear upon Egypt. By the hand of God through his servant Moses. In light of this news. In light of this story, in light of this text, in light of God's word, 
I ask you today, I beckon you today to determine whether or not you will know Jesus as your Savior or fear Him as your judge. We're left with two options according to the Word of God. There are no other options. Invited to know Him as our Savior, to know Him personally, to know Him intimately, to call Him Lord, to turn away from sin and self and to embrace Jesus as Lord and Savior, to trust Him and to follow after Him, to find life and joy, delight and satisfaction in Him, or to continue rejecting Him in sin and face His judgment when He returns. Friend, who is He to you? Is He your Lord or is He your judge? Where do you stand before God? Where will you stand For eternity, where will you spend eternity? Have you softened your heart to the God who saves? Father, help us to do that. Lord, help us be a people who take in your word. Lord, who believe it. Who read it humbly. A people who are broken over our sin. A people who celebrate your provision And Father, we thank you that even though you are a mighty and just judge, you extend your mercy to us. Father, we believe your word that says the return of Christ is tarry. Or that you tarry, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Father, may we be a people who turn to you and trust you and live for you and proclaim the riches of your grace. Or who know you as our Savior and who make you known with our lives. Father, lead us to that end for your glory. Lord, even now as we respond to the truth of your word, as we reflect on your gospel, as we take this to heart, Lord, I pray that we would truly take it to heart, Lord, that this would be a time that we praise you. That this would be a time that we confess our sin. That this would be a time that we turn to you and delight in you. That we're moved to, to joy that only comes from you. Lord, lead us to that end for your glory. Hear our praise now. Lead us to express our faith in a way that glorifies you. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.